On today's Roadman Cycling Podcast, we talk with Israel startup nation Fastman Rick Zabel. Let's cue that intro. The big question is this How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Roadman, welcome back to another Roadman Cycling Podcast. I got some hilarious feedback on yesterday's podcast. The podcast was titled, The Day I Shit Myself. And <laughs> it wasn't a proud story. It's not easy to tell a story. And I got a message coming in from a lot on Instagram saying, on the rare occasion in the past, I've bailed out on an interval on the Turbo but not never for the reason I did today because I was laughing so hard at the I shit myself story. Comedy gold, chapeau. Yeah, it's it's funny how uh, my misfortune can become uh, a reason for you to skip your intervals. But there we go. Uh, also, amazing thank you to everybody who hit me up on Instagram DMs for the free cycling kit giveaway. People self-filtered brilliantly. Like one or two people reached out going, yes, give me kit. And I said, do you really need it? And they're like, actually, no, somebody else probably needs it. So I've picked probably 20 people who I feel are very deserving of the kit. I've got addresses of them. So you can stop DMing me now. Everybody that's going to get kit has been in touch. And if I'm going to do another bit of a closet clear out, which I hopefully will in the coming few months, I'll do a similar appeal again. Today's podcast is a whopper. It's Rick Zabel. If you don't know Rick Zabel, Rick Zabel is an essential part of the Israel startup nation lead out train. One of the fastest men in the world, but super proficient at navigating that last couple of kilometers. He is the son of one of the most famous cyclists of all time, Eric Zabel, one of the goats. And we chat about that and stepping out of his shadow. He's also a super rounded guy. You know, he's got, taken that initial expectation of trying to step out of his dad's shadow and the pressure of winning under 23 Tour of Flanders. And he's made his own career, but he's also talks entrepreneurship. He talks his podcast, Plan Z, and much, much more. This is a super enjoyable interview. So I'm looking forward to serving it up to you guys. Before I do, just a heads up about our Patreon. I've been dropping a secret podcast once a week over on Patreon. And that's really a thank you to everybody for supporting the podcast. So to get your hands on the secret podcast each week, all you got to do is buy me a beer once a month. So how you can buy me that beer, because I get a bunch of DMs. The link is in the podcast description below, but some of the podcast platforms don't make that link clickable. So it is www.patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. Head on over there. It'll take two seconds to buy the price of a pint of beer. And that means I can keep bringing you this content for free. You know, the content is totally free. And if you can afford it, that's the contribution you make. It's it's, it's a bit like them Harry Krishna lads handing you a flower, isn't it? You give the flower in the hope that you get something back. It's a little bit like that. We should rename this the Roadman Harry Krishna podcast. Roadman, let's jump on to this one. It's a really enjoyable interview with a thoroughly nice guy. It's Rick Zabel. Hey, everybody. Uh, hello to all the listeners and thanks for having me. Rick, what's going on with this uh, Roar clothing brand? I was doing a bit of research for the potty. And I stumbled upon it. <laughs> uh, it's not really a clothing brand, to be honest. Uh, we we did some clothing, but this was more 
uh, or we did this because there was Corona and we didn't have much else to do than uh, <laughs> opening, than opening uh, like an uh, uh, online shop and put in some stuff there. And the, the idea behind war is I live in Cologne and uh, Cologne is in the northwest of Germany around one hour away from the border of Netherlands and Belgium. And uh, I think we have like, Cologne has like, 1.1 million citizens so quite a lot of people uh, i think one of the top five cities in germany but what we don't have is a cool clubhouse for cycling fans and uh, that's basically the idea behind it that i uh, have three friends like i'm 25 percent of this project and um, one is a web designer another one is designing clothes another one comes more like from uh, or he he had he has a restaurant so he comes more like from the uh, restaurant side and uh, yeah i'm a little they all three they love cycling they are just like uh, amateur cyclists who love to go out on a good day and have a good ride and uh, that's what i have in common with them so we four together had the idea to start a cycling coffee shop we like to call it the clubhouse because we have the idea that it's like a place for people to meet who like cycling, no matter if it is mountain bike, BMX, gravel, road cycling. And yeah, because unfortunately Cologne, my, my hometown doesn't have it so far. We want to create it. And uh, now I can finally also say that we uh, have a shop here in Cologne and it, it will open on the 1st of March this year. So uh, awesome. yeah, it's, it's a project now for one and a half years and now we can finally like interact also with the people in real life and not just about our online shop or over Instagram. That's amazing. I'm definitely have to go, uh, go and check it out. I actually had a similar, I, I'm going to call it more of a dream than an idea a few years ago. So it was, uh, it was probably a year before lockdown and pandemic started. So I bought a local coffee shop and for that same reason, I thought like I had friends who were playing golf. And half of the fun in golf was the clubhouse. You know, you play 18 holes, but all the drinking happened in the clubhouse. All the laughs happened in the clubhouse. And I thought, like, it's so shit when I got to meet a buddy for a ride. If I'm five minutes earlier, he's 10 minutes late. You're kind of left standing on the street corner or waiting on a bridge or something. It's like, oh, we need a clubhouse. So I bought a coffee shop and... I, unlike you, didn't have the wisdom to partner with somebody who actually knew the restaurant game. So I ended up buying a place that was too small. And it was like a 35 seats in the coffee shop. So then I started actually getting into being a coffee shop owner rather than having this cool clubhouse. And I'm looking at margins and going, okay, shit, we need to turn these seats over faster. So it never became the kind of cool hangout place that I thought. And then yeah. I saw I sold it after about two years. But I still have the dream. I'm still going to revisit this at some time. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, I don't want to put out all my ideas uh, or all our ideas, what we plan to do in there, but uh, it's not, it's not an easy task to do it. And also the first shop we rented out now is just for nine months because like we try to create this community and um, it's, it's going to be step by step. Uh, I, I guess the place we have at the moment or at the moment will be too small as well, but it's a starting, it's a starting point. And um, if we see that, yeah, this whole thing creates uh, or develops like uh, we hope 
then for sure um, we try to exactly do this to create this big clubhouse and create a people uh, create a place for people who like to ride their bike and hang out in a cycling coffee shop watch Paris Roubaix and uh, come like don't don't watch Paris Roubaix on their couch they try to go they try uh, or they they're gonna come to our clubhouse and watch it to, together with all the other cycling fans have you been to there's a cough when i was looking at the idea for mine i went over to london i'm based in dublin so london's a pretty short flight went across to london and checked out some of the coffee shops but there was one called look mom no hands and yeah i, I heard about that yeah. yeah that's what we're going to check out they've got a cool vibe going on and I don't, I don't know what their bottom line looks like. I don't know if they make any money, but it, it's a mm. cool place to go and hang out and watch TV and have a beer and yeah. that sort of vibe you're looking for. It's, it's a great name also. And, uh, and uh, exactly. I mean, also, I have personal reasons to, to, uh, yeah, to start this uh, whole thing because I'm also looking forward to yeah, go, go there, hang out before, after my ride, have a coffee there, eat something and just like, because I mean, one big part, or maybe the part I love most about the sport, is the community. And uh, I mean, being a pro cyclist is—you just hang out with a really small percentage of this community, like with the high-performance guys. And um, to be honest, uh, the, my opinion, the more interesting talks are definitely when I just ride with my friends, with my local friends here, especially when it's summer and like the, we have the sun just goes down at like eight, nine or 10 PM. And like when they finish with work, I go out with my friends and yeah. like we have like a fun ride together. This is much more fun for me personal. Yeah. Um, exact so, same. We actually started a group ride on Saturday mornings here in Dublin Yeah, uh, for the exact same reason. It's when I used to ride and, you know, I'm trying to make it as a pro all my friends were either pro or trying to make it as a pro, or if I go to Girona, I'm riding, then everybody is kind of the same stage in life. And that kind of makes it like they all have the same stories. And they're, you know, we're talking about what's per kilogram race calendars, but then you come to a group like our Saturday group. And it's like one guy's into investment. One guy's unemployed. One guy's a lawyer. One guy's, you know, this girl, there's one guy in our rides and I talk about him all the time in the podcast. He's like 81 years old and he rides with us every Saturday. And, you know, he was a professional back, you know, 50 years ago, but (laughs) it's so cool to ride with somebody like that because you just wouldn't do it normally. Exactly. Exactly. It's, I, I copy this for 100%, like same opinion because, uh, yeah, like you said, you, you just, uh, hear different stories and you, yeah, you you come into different lives, and also one important thing is for me that, I mean, these guys I train with my friends, they do it as a hobby. They buy their own bikes and their own stuff, and they also really bring me down to earth again when I'm complaining about bad weather or whatever. They like, man, you can ride your bike and you even get paid for it. Man, you are so, <laughs> you are you are so lucky. And honestly, like this puts things in perspective again for me. And because that, like it's it, it's easy like to yeah if you if you train with your teammates and uh, yeah to complain oh again so much training or so intensive or whatever and yeah talking with different people just gives you like a more more or a different view on all these things and like to appreciate the life I have also more. 
So I had Alex Dowsett, your teammate, on the podcast uh, a little while ago <clears throat> last week, and we were he was talking about aerodynamics as Alex Dowsett does, and he was yeah. talking about aerodynamics and how he was trying to talk sprinters, fast guys like yourself, into wearing more aerodynamic stuff. And so he was saying, you know, this is the he take a piece of equipment, whether it's you know aero shoes, aero socks, or a skin suit, and talk about the advantage that it has. And I was saying to him, you know, Alex, it, it is cool, and I hear what you're saying, but the equation for the normal listener of this podcast isn't, you know, cotton socks versus aero socks. It's how much saving do the socks make versus how much are they going to cost me? Because I have to buy these with my own money. It's not the team handling yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a difference. So I was saying it's like, instead of like a coefficient of frontal drag being the metric, I was like, we need to design a new one where it's CDA divided by dollars. <laughs> and it's like, what's the <laughs> cheapest, what's the fastest way on a budget to go uh, cheat the wind? Yeah. Uh, I, I totally, uh, I same opinion. Um, I mean, I, I'm super happy that Alex is on the team, to be honest, because, um, yeah, because he's caring about all this aerodynamic stuff and he's doing all, the, all of that stuff. I don't have to care about anything and I just come to the race and I ask him, so what suit do you <laughs> going to wear? Which socks you going to wear? Which bike or which wheels you going to use? And I just use exactly the same. So I'm, I'm, I know I have the best, I have the best setup. Like that's, that's all I have to do. And to be honest, uh, that's actually what most of our uh, guys do. I mean, um, we are a leader together with Matthias Brendle, also a good rider from Austria. And Alex and me, we, we are basically the main leader group. And then we have different sprinters behind us. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I really like Alex. He's one of my favorite teammates and uh, also a regular roommate. And um, it, it's, for me personally, it's great that he cares about these things because, uh, yeah, in the cycling world, Unfortunately, I, I don't want to say unfortunately, but that somehow the, like the, the sport developed. And um, yeah, I mean, my, my dad was a pro cyclist as well. Uh, and uh, I mean, the, the, the reason I fell in love with cycling, I come back again to the community because I mean, he did, he raced six days, he did all those big races and but like seeing him as a pro rider growing up, there was always a big of like, it, it always looked fun. It always looked like a big party somehow. Like they had wings <laughs> after the races, and that's that's the way I got socialized with cycling. And that was also the part I love or I love most about uh, the sport. And like I grew up with with like in my head, like okay, if I train six hours. I can eat everything after because I burn so much calories. Whatever, like I, I'm not gonna gain weight. And now, cycling is becoming this high performance sport, and uh, yeah, all this, uh, all this, all the enjoyable things are getting less and less. And if you wanna, if you wanna still like play a part in the cycling game, you you have to care about those things now. But uh, it's, in my opinion, it's a little bit less fun. But uh, yeah, that's uh, in the end. This is then the part where it becomes a job, and uh, I, I'm not sure if I got your question right. <laughs> but, <laughs> to be honest, but uh, this is the problem when you have your own podcast. So if anyone doesn't know, Rick has his own podcast, Plan Z. So he's just gone as if he's hosted this one, just going ranting, freestyling. 
<laughs> yeah, man. Honestly, like uh, I, I would that's the, I, I often become the question, hey, why? Like from all my listeners, like, hey, why do why are you not doing an episode with Alex Dorset or with Chris Froome? We would love to hear it. And I always respond that I would say my English is okay after all these years in cycling, but to explain exactly or everything exactly how I want to say it and how I mean it, I'm much better in my mother language, German. That's why my podcast is just in German. And if I listen to you, honestly, you have a quite strong uh, essence. So I really have to listen very carefully. So if I don't get the question right, sometimes just tell, uh, ask me again and I try <laughs> to respond better. <laughs> so let, we talked about Alex Dousis, uh there yes. briefly. So you and Alex were teammates in Katusha also. Yes, yes exactly. We see this in pro cycling a lot, and I'm not sure if this is the case with you and Alex, but I now say my fellow countryman, Sam Bennett, when he moved from Quickstep last year to Bora this year, he brings the, he brings with him like a posse. And then when Sagan moves from yeah, Bora yeah, yeah, to Direct yeah. Energy, he brings a posse. What's, what's going on with that? Like from your experience, why do people seem to move in these groups? Is that orchestrated by the rider, by the manager, or how does that happen? Um, it's a mix of everything, definitely of the wider and the management. And yeah, I mean, you as a as a successful wider, like a wider who wins a lot of races, um, he has some power. So, like like you said, like Sam Bennett is a good example. Like, I mean, he didn't race now for quite a while, but before he stopped racing with his knee injury, he was definitely the best sprinter uh, in the world. He won every sprint basically last year. Yeah. And um, then, of course, like if he changes teams, um, he can or he, he can put some uh, or like if he tell if he tells the team, OK, I'm going to change to your team, but I'm just going to change if I can take Ryan Mullen and if I can take Danny van Poppel and uh, the flying mullet because I need these three guys to be uh, successful, like they are good leader riders. Um, I like them personal also because that's also a very important thing that you race with riders you like and you have a good atmosphere. So, um, yeah, that's basically what Sam Bennett tries to do, which, total like, which totally makes sense. And, um, yeah, but don't forget that you, have, you need to be Sam Bennett or you need to be Peter Sagan to do this. Like, as, like if I come to a team now, I'm, I would be a rider more being in a package, let's say, with, with the rider. But unfortunately, this never happened to me so far. Like I, I, always, <laughs> I, I always had to fight for my contracts. And the reason I'm teammates with Alex so long is basically that we both had contracts with Kadusha when the team folded. And um, then East, uh, East World Cycling Academy back then um, bought the World Tour license from, our, from the Kadusha. Yes. And because we still had contracts, we both changed to, to Israel. That's that's actually what ha happened. So in this case, it was more like a coincidence and not really planned. But um, I mean, now I think now the team is very happy that they could make this deal because, uh, like like I just said, uh, I'm me, Matthias uh, or Alex, Matthias Brunner, and me. We are the we are the lead out group in Israel. And now you got Nazolo next year. You got to be pretty psyched about that. Oh man, really, really happy. Um, I I've mean, I've been uh, oh. Actually, Andre Greipel, who was a sprinter last year, is one of, one of my best friends. Like he seems like the nicest fucking guy ever. 
well, he's he's such a humble and cool guy, and like he's living three, four, uh, let's say four kilometers away from me, and uh, I basically train with him every day, or I train with him every day. Of course, now he stopped his career and he's not training that much anymore, but still uh, riding a little bit. And like you said, he's such a humble guy. He he would do like like no star allures or anything. I could like I could ask him for anything, and he would, and I could call him anytime. And he would be there. That's also why he's maybe like, if I look back on my nine years of professional cycling, he's the only rider I would consider as a best friend or like a real, real close friend. Like you, you, you get more yeah, yeah. friends during the time, but he's really the one I have by far the best relation with. But yeah, also here coming back on the question, um, I had a nice time with Andre, but it was time to stop for him. And um, yeah, I was very happy to see that the team signed Nizolo. And also I come along with him very, very good. Uh, this guy has a lot of class. Like he's real Italian and I like the style of him, how he rides and how he behaves also in training. Like he seems to be a very cool guy and I can't, I can't wait to start racing with him because, I mean, he won a Giro stage last year. Uh, in the in the Corona season 2020, he was European champion. He was Italian champion, and um, yeah, it, it, he's someone who can win big races, I'm sure. And as a leadout guy, you are always a little bit, uh, yeah, you need a good sprinter behind you. Like you can do the best leadouts in the world, but if your sprinter never finishes it off, yeah, it doesn't give you a good uh, value to the team. So, um, so talk to us about the leadout. So everybody watching on the TV, they have no real idea of how do, how do you guys get organized? What does the communication look like for that last, is it, how, how far out do you take it up? Like four kilometers you start thinking about getting organized or further? Oh, it depends which race. Um, and also it depends a little bit uh, how the, the technical, technical part of the race is like a race like UAE tour, for example, where you race mostly on highways and uh, the, the road is like 20 meter wide, you don't have a big stress for positioning. It's more about timing. Um, but then one week later, you come to a race like Perenice or Tirreno Adriatico, and you start racing on the smaller European roads. It's a whole different story. So, um, uh, for example, like when, when do we get organized? I would say um, in every race meeting, and there's no like real rule it always depends a little bit like in the race meeting before the race we look at the, at the parkour and we say for example okay our meeting point is 25k to go or 10k to go like i said depends which race and for example in the in the tour de france the meeting point is basically 50k to go because somehow it's a tour de france that everybody is stressed. double as stressed as normal so uh, then you meet even before that um but yeah, let's say like in a normal race, you would you you create a meeting point, and then you try just to ride near each other together, and then um, the real real lead out is starts. I would say just in the last three kilometers, you have first you have like strong guys like Alex Dowsett or like Matthias Brendler. They keep you out of the wind, but already in a very good position like in the first 20 or 30 uh, riders of the peloton and these guys these guys have a hard job because they need to be good in position but also they need to put the nose in the wind 
yeah. from time to time again and have a big engine to keep you there. And then basically my job normally starts in the last kilometer. And uh, that depends. I, normally I'm the last guy before the sprinter. So uh, EDL, like or the best scenario would be that, for example, Alex drops me off with 500 meters to go and I can launch my sprint until 220 and sort of the sprinter with a good speed and that he can start a sprint. But of course, there are many lead-out trains. And also, it, it happens very often that you are not the lead-out who's in front and like is dictating the tempo. So then I'm more the guy who tries to put the sprinter in the last K in a very good position. Like yeah. in the, in the, So that's my job, basically, uh, leading out or putting the sprinter in a good position. So with all the chaos, if Alex and you get separated, how are you communicating this message to him? Are you just screaming at him? Are you using race radios? Or do you guys have like a, you know, a signal? I guess it's pretty hard to talk at a 185 heart rate. So like, are the messages very brief that you're given? Or oh, it's honestly, it's a lot by feeling. Um, it, it's funny because the sport directors always said what you just said, like, yeah, use the radio. There's no chance you use the radio in the last three kilometers because it's so much stress. And also imagine like taking one hand away from the handlebar. Yeah. You have, you just have half control. So like it's a big risk to crash. And that's the last, uh, that's, uh, this for sure you don't want, you don't want to crash. So um, yeah, basically when I lose Alex, because I'm behind him, it's more my job to find him again. Okay. And um, yeah, but, but the Peloton is still, you need to have a good feeling for this. So the Peloton is a, it's it's a little bit like a wash machine, let's say. Like, uh, and I always have the feeling you more like the, the harder you try to change your position, the worse it gets. Sometimes if you stay calm and you let the rider like who separates you from my teammate, you just let him through, or you tell him, "Hey mate," uh, or you give him a little push or whatever it's much easier to stay where you are and you will find each other again. Not all the time, but that's at least my feeling. But I always hear that, uh, like, I don't want to talk uh, too good about myself, but uh, I think <laughs> that's, that's one of my uh, stronger points that I, yeah, I try, I always try to take, uh, stay calm, not to, not to stress out too much. And uh, yeah, don't don't act crazy or don't act uh, too too fast because I always have a sprinter behind me. And if I lose Alex, um, that's still better than I lose a sprinter. So um, it's uh, yeah, a little bit. It's, it's it, it also depends from sprint to sprint. And even if Alex is not there, the good thing is there. Most of the time, there are ten other different teams who also try to bring their sprinter in front. So then I can use the other teams as well. Um, yeah, but yeah, sprinting is always gambling and a little bit of luck, timing. And uh, that's, that's why for me, it's also a sprint for me is the most exciting part uh, in bike racing. But when I watch you in the last few kilometers, yes, you're you're calm. You don't look rushed. You're not like, you know, you watch some riders like the, they're like the Tasmanian devil. You watch Buhani and you just know there's chaos somewhere near him. But you watch you and you're very calm. But you also have a nice way of 
moving uh, and uh, maybe listeners won't appreciate it unless they've raced but you have a nice way of moving through a gap but opening the gap so your sprinter can follow through that same gap rather than just squeezing through a gap and leaving your sprinter isolated you very rarely get separated from your sprinter is this something that you've worked on or it just comes natural from instinct uh, i didn't work on that i think that's uh more an instinct but um, I mean I've been also a sprinter in a few races and especially when I was young and I always hated it when I followed a guy who moved too fast or who moved through gaps that I couldn't follow so yeah it lets you down a little bit as a sprinter so um, yeah I, I think I just have this feeling from also because I was a sprinter I for me, there's one rule and that's like, I don't want to get separated from the sprinter. So even if there's like, it always depends on the situation, of course, because you always try to be in a good position also. Like if, if I'm separated with, uh, if I'm together with the sprinter, but on position 50, then he's also not happy. But um, yeah, uh, if, if I, I always try to move and have at least a high chance that the sprinter can follow. Um, if I have the feeling, ah, I can squeeze through here, but I'm pretty sure the sprinter not. Then I just don't move. That's basically my rule. Rick, rewinding all the way back to 2012, you dropped out of school to sign for Rabobank. Looking back now with the benefit of 10 years, it's I, this kind of prompted by I put a post on Instagram the other day and it was a picture of me 10 years ago and a picture of me now. <laughs> and it was like, would your younger self be proud of you? Would, are you proud of everything you've achieved? And do you regret the decision of leaving school early or was it the correct one? Um, no, I'm not regretting it. Um, I'm proud on what I did um, because it, I, I think also my, my younger version of myself would be proud as well because um, I, I left school. Um, I, also, I also have to say it. I left schools one one and a half years before the highest grade. I have the grade below this. I don't know what it is okay. in English, but so it's not that I don't finish school at all. Like I I, I finished school, but not the highest grade. Oh, okay. Um, um, the, the, I, I always have to uh, tell this also because I mean, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I don't want to uh, hear. Or I don't, don't want to sound like I just left school. Like I I finished eleven years of school. I just didn't finish the thirteen years, which are like the best grade in Germany. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I would do it again because back then it was my biggest dream and goal to be a professional cyclist. And I got the offer from Rabobank, um, uh, a continental team, uh, but a development team. And back then it was by far the best development team in the world. And so I, I knew, okay, if I want to get a pro cyclist, uh, th that's my chance. And I wanted to take it. And in my head, it was easy because I said, okay, I have four years of U23 now. So that's four years of trying becoming a professional cyclist. If I make it in those four years, then okay, great. If I don't make it, okay, then my dream is over. But I, I leave that tried. And then I can like uh, finish school after these four years. Um, but I never have regrets of not trying it. That was like um, how I was thinking back then. Um, but of course, now now I'm older, and I'm also for, I'm a father as well, and I have a son. And it's it's crazy how your views change. Like when I look when I think back on it now, um, I also think, man, that was not like it takes some balls to do that. 
also because you can you can trust me my parents weren't happy at all they, <laughs> they, they, they didn't they didn't like that but like if i look back on this uh, on this time i was i was never doubting that it will not work out for me it was clear yeah i do it and this works out but like i said looking now back on these times it's like man i could have been injured like this could have happened this could have happened but back then this was never in my head like so i would say i was even uh, i even have had more guts back then than i than i have now but those first few years they must have been so so exciting because i think i call it the beginner's mindset and it's when you start out anything new you're never sure where the ceiling is you're never sure you know if you're going to you know i want to we'll talk in a minute about your dad but you're never sure if you're going to you know, eclipse the greatness that he had. Like you start out and you're winning U23 Tour of Flanders, you're signing World Tour with BMC at 19. You must have been just like, what the fuck? This could go anywhere. I could be the next Cipollini. The ceiling is unknown. Yes, yes, exactly. That, that was exactly my mindset. And um, it was actually after this I started to struggle because you, you explained it very well. Uh, I won the U23 Flanders. So in my head, it was also like, okay, I'm going to be the next uh, Fabian Cancellaro or the next Tom Bone. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to win Flanders and Roubaix as well. And then, uh, uh, yeah, so I was I was com- in my U23 years, like same age like me as Caleb Ewan, Dylan Grunewig, Julian Alaphilippe. And I was competing with these guys. And then I went professional with BMC. And... Um, yeah, nine years further, I'm still a professional rider, and I think I found my place in cycling. But I won two races so far, and the other guys they stayed winners, let's say, or they beca- they became winners also in the pro, and I didn't. And honestly, I it took me a few years, or it took my first two three years wasn't easy because it was hard to accept for me. Like I also wanted to be this winner. Um, and then it got easier. Like after the three years in BMC, um, I changed to Katusha and I became uh, part of the leader train from Alexander Kristoff. And th- that gave me a purpose in cycling. Like I fin- finally found my place. Uh, this is my job. This is my job, exactly. And then it wasn't hard anymore to accept because I realized, okay, I, like I leveled up uh, or I beat everyone to get professional cycling, but once you are in the highest level, every, everyone won races here to come here. And now it's like now it's like the best against the best. And okay, then here are, here are better ones to to win the races. And like I said, it wasn't easy to accept. But then when I when I finally got to Kadusha and I found my place in leader train, I found myself or like I realized okay, I maybe not the best. Uh, sprinter in the world but i can become one of the best leader guys in the world so this was like my new challenge and yeah i, I that's also what i always try to explain to younger riders now that you need to find your position in the sport and you need to find the value to the team because if you are just a strong guy but you cannot sprint or you cannot climb or you are not good in time trailing you can do a little bit of everything they can just change you because a lot of riders can do that. But you need to find a value for the team to, to have a long career and stay in the sport. Well, that's what Dowsett was explaining. He was saying like he can't brand himself as a time trialist 
because if he brands himself as a time trialist, all of a sudden he's a time trial specialist who can't win time trials. He's like, I can't beat people Ghana. I can't do 490 watts for 40 minutes or whatever crazy wattage he's doing. But he said he can brand himself as a lead out man and he can be an effective part of that lead out train. And that yeah. he sees as his route to extend in his career. Exactly. Exactly. Like I said, you, you need to find a, a value and yeah, coming also back what we talked uh, earlier in this episode that cycling is getting more, uh, more professional and it's getting uh, yeah, a high performance sport more and more. It's not getting easier for guys like Alex and me. Like, like I said, I, I would say we are good or average to good professional bike riders like in the, in the, in the world tour. But then if you compare yourself to Remco Evenepoel, to Filippo Ghana, what, what these guys are capable to do, you feel bad. So yeah, I, I also just realized to feel better for myself that it's not good to compare. You, you need to try to be the best version you are. You're the only, like, it's, it's me against me somehow, you know? Like, I can compare my numbers with last year and my weight, and then I need to be happy with that because, yeah, like I said, you, you race against the best riders in the world, and there are two, two ways uh, and it's, uh, of on looking on that, and it's a way of perspective. Do you want to be sad not being as good as the best? Or do you want to be proud to at least make it to the Tour de France, finish the Tour de France and compete with these guys? And I prefer to take the second option and just be proud that I can do the Tour de France and I can race it. And even if I don't win the Tour de France, I at least finish it. And I know for myself, hey, man, that, that was my maximum, but then I can be happy with that. But there's a great message in there for everybody because, you know, whether it's clients I'm working with, coaching clients, or if it's just friends on a group ride or even outside cycling, so many people are hung up on this idea of peer comparison, like comparing themselves to the neighbor, comparing, oh, you know, I don't earn as much money as him. I'm not as good looking as him. I'm not as fast as him, as talented as him. Really, it, it's the surest way to being unhappy is comparing yourself to somebody yes. else's circumstances. A much healthier approach is like you said, the only person you're competing against is you from last week, you from last month, and you from last year. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, one it's uh I've been through this, like I said, in the in, when I was younger and I, I compare myself a lot to all the other guys. Um it's it's not it's not healthy, it's unhealthy, and you get it's it's not far from a depression or being unhappy all the time. And um, yeah, you you need to you need to find a way out of this, and no matter if it's with help, uh, mental training, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's I think it's very important that you are it, that you are happy with yourself. But it's not easy. I think everybody struggles from time to time, and uh, everybody someone needs to find their own way. You mentioned Dylan Gronewagen there. Uh, it'd be interesting to get a sprinter's perspective on Tour of Poland. Is that something that's like? Is it talked about in the peloton? The, I'm referring to the Jakobsen, sort of the high-speed crash. I suppose my take on it is uh, sprinting is fucking dangerous. You know, the, tour, the organizers of Tour of Poland organized a tailwind downhill sprint. It looked to me like, you know, we're, we don't race on Zwift. You know, you're yes, allowed yes. to deviate from your line a little bit. You know, what Buhani does is fucking crazy, but that didn't seem to me what Grunewagen did. And it looks like it's a bad precedent, Jakobsen taking legal action against somebody for something in a bike race. I, I think so many people are shocked and horrified 
by the consequences, which were horrific. But I, I think you need to punish behavior, not consequences, because consequences are chance. Behavior is what needs to be regulated. And for me, the consequences were horrible, but I didn't see the behavior as you know any worse than we see in a lot of sprints. But I'd be interested to hear your take as a sprinter on it. Yeah, uh, that's a difficult one. Like I'm, I'm also, I also have the opinion that uh, the first mistake was that the sprint was even allowed by the UCI. This is like a sprint like that shouldn't be allowed because yeah, it's very easy to create a crash with the circumstances of being a downhill sprint and that fast. Um, then of course, uh, Dylan does a mistake there. He moves from his line and that's why Fabio crashes, but. Yeah, he's not doing this because he thinks, ah, yes, I'm crashing Fabio now into the hospital. Um, that was for sure not what he was thinking in that moment. Like he's a sprinter and he wants to win. And that's why he moves the line a little bit. And this was over the limit, of course. But I'm, I'm sure he didn't do it. He didn't do, uh, did this, uh, he didn't do it on purpose. And, um, yeah, then general sprint, sprinting is very, very dangerous. Um, and uh, But there's also a different, like there's this name in cycling, which is a gentleman sprinter. And uh, a gentleman sprinter is someone who tries to win, but not on every chance or in any case. Like if he's out of position, he just says, okay, tomorrow is another day. Yeah, And it's not trying like to crash everyone just to like uh, because there are these riders uh, like, like you said Buhani and in, th in this case um, it's funny because Dylan is one of the riders uh, or he was, I, I didn't do a sprint for a long time now against him but he was always one of the riders who risked a lot but Fabio as well like I, I sprinted against both of them or like in the finals and both of them were in my opinion riders who were really, really fighting for the for their position very, very hard. So then it, it had to happen that also these guys come together and something like this happens. And then, of course, uh, I, I, I think it, it changed both of them, and that's good. It's sad that it had to happen, but uh, I think Dylan is now not uh, as crazy anymore as before. And also Fabio, uh, like uh, I was super happy to see him back healthy and winning stages last year in La Vuelta and everyone. But um, yeah, he has to be honest also that when he, like he is also a young guy and he was motivated and he want, wanted to sprint as, uh, as well. Like it's an unpopular opinion, but he could have braked as well. Before. I was just about to say that. Like if that's so, me sprinting, I have no <laughs> balls. I'm, exactly. I'm, grabbing, I'm grabbing brakes there. I'm not going for exactly. that gap. Exactly. So it's it, it always takes two, and uh, yeah, it's it's long ago now. And uh, Fabio is healthy again. Dylan learned from it, and um, yeah, uh, I think or I hope that this can be just a good example for for every sprinter that we all want to or all the sprinters want to win. But um, your life and your health is more important. And uh, yeah, if you these riders who who risk a lot they are not really liked in the peloton that's for sure i can see that uh your friend uh fucking name escapes me nice <laughs> man ever best friend you're talking andre, about andre uh, Greipel. i would say he is an example of a gentleman sprinter exactly exactly yeah definitely like he 
And you, you can trust me, he's very pissed after the sprint when he was out of position. Or it happened a few times that he said, man, why didn't I uh, yeah, use my shoulders more or my elbows or whatever? And then I always told him, yeah, man, but that's, that's your character. That is how you are. And that's also why people like you because you never created a big crash uh, just because you wanted to win. And he, he always had this approach, yeah, Razor, he's good enough from his legs and with his teammates to bring him in position, but you, you cannot win any, any sprint. And it's always a fine line between like when you, when you are, of course, when you break too much and when you are always afraid, you all, will also never win a sprint. And for sure, some people, when they listen to this now, they will say, hey, this is not a winner's mentality. You don't break. But trust me, like, yeah, if, if, uh, if it's my decision, like, for sure, you need to take some risk and you need to take the elbows. But there's always a line when it's not necessary anymore. See if you can guess who I'm uh, talking about here, Rick. 152 professional wins, 12 Tour de France stages, eight Vuelta España stages, four Milan San Ramos, two national championships, and I'm still gold. <laughs> That's my dad. That's my dad. <laughs> that is your dad, one of the greatest ever, Eric Zabel. What, how much does that influence your decision to go into cycling? And then is it a positive or is it negative? Is it hard to step out of that shadow or is it just going through your whole career, just so proud of your dad's achievements? Um, it's... Uh goes and comes in waves, let's say. Um, now, I was, I'm was i definitely proud on what my dad achieved. Um, he was not a big influence um, that I started cycling, or like more indirect, because of course I was I was at the Tour de France when he raced it as a fan, as a son, and I loved the Tour de France, and uh, I loved to be in the atmosphere and everything. So, of course, this was something I liked, but my dad never pushed me towards the bike like he was never like hey you also need to become a professional cyclist never i started uh, or my first sport i did was soccer or yeah and we say football here in germany yeah we say football um, there too <laughs> <laughs> um and i played three years football and then i i stopped it because i lost the fun a little bit and then I, I, I got a, a little bit fat, let's say. <laughs> As a kid, I, I eat a lot of candies, but didn't do a lot of sport. So uh, then my, my parents just asked me, okay, man, do you, do you want to try another sport? Maybe you like something else. And I always like bike riding. And then, yeah, let's, uh, here's this local club not far from my home. So let, let, let's go there. And also there, what I loved about it was the community. The guys like my age, I, I trained with and I met at the races, they become my friends really fast. And it was just a cool community. And that's what I liked so much about it. I, it, it took me even, I think I stayed two or two and a half years, or my first two and two and a half years, I, I wasn't very successful. Like I didn't win straight away races. Um, but I always loved to hang out with my with my mates. And uh, that's, that's why I liked it so much. And then after these two two and a half years i started to win races more and more first like on first on a local base and like national and then i even got in the national team and international and that's when my father stepped in a little bit because then of course he gave me advice and he he could see that i have talent and uh, yeah then he gave me advice and of course he he pushed me 
Um, and he, but o o always also very fair. The only the only thing he always told me is like, if you do it, then do it one hundred percent because otherwise cycling is a shit job. Like if you are not good and you got like you you get dropped or you are not fit, it's not a nice sport to do. So if you really want to be be good, do it one hundred percent or don't do it at all. And that was more the kind of mentality he gave me, which was also important. And uh, like uh, so, there he was a big support. But um, of course, uh, I got compared always to my dad. But it seems and like he's such a great, you know, one of the all-time greats in our sport. That it's, I don't know, from the outside, it looks less pressure than if your dad was just a regular run-of-the-mill pro. Then there's kind of a pressure to be, oh, can you be better than your dad? But because your dad is just like one of the goats. Yeah, it, it's like you know the chances of anybody ever accomplishing that are very slim. Never mind the chances of his son accomplishing that. So uh, I don't know. It, it's it's a strange one. I I can see how it's pressure for most people when their dad is a professional, but when your dad is one of the greatest ever, is that a little bit pressure off? No, uh, um, it's. Like, I just wanted to say, like, I always get got compared to my dad, also because like. For my age, when I was like 14, 15, I started to get better and uh, I got like national championships and all this stuff. And uh, my, my, my dad was always similar successful, like when he was in the same age like me. So like when I talked with him about it, he always said, ah, you, you, you already got one year earlier than me, national champion of Germany, for example. <laughs> so then I was always, always like in my head, ah, yeah, so he's my dad. So I have the same talent. So, hey, that's cool. So maybe I will have the same career. Um, but uh, yeah, what, what I wanted to say is like, uh, I think it made me better because when I got to the races, uh, the kids who wanted to weigh, or I always had the feeling at least, the kids uh, I raced against, they, they wanted to win, but they all also wanted to beat me. Like they always liked to be better than me. But that made me stronger again. Yeah. And um, so, the, the, so I would, yeah, looking back on this, uh, I would say it made me stronger. Um, and uh, yeah, to be compared also is positive and negative because I have to say, of course, when I didn't perform or when I was not good, yeah, people liked to be better than me. And that was for me personally not a nice feeling. But as soon as I won a race, or, and even if it was more important, it was all over the media or at least the cycling media in Germany. Yeah. So as soon as I won a race, it was like, ah, Rick won this, Rick won that. And that would not have happened if I hadn't the name Zabo. So I'm truly aware that it was also positive in a lot of cases. And uh, it's a good example is, for example, when I won the U23 Flanders, um, of course, it was nice to win it, but it was also the son of Eric Zabel who won U23 Flanders. So, It yeah. took like two or three days and a few world teams was knocking on the door and said, hey, we want to sign you. And uh, I'm pretty sure that didn't happen to all the other guys who won U23 Flanders before. So, What's well, the same? Um, We've had uh, Nicholas Roach, fellow countryman. Yes. I've had him on the podcast a few times. And yeah, he said for a long, long time, it's the son of Stephen Roach has won this, the son of Stephen Roach. It's very difficult to step out of those big shadows. Yes. But for example, Nick, Nick, Nicholas did. And And the funny thing is, um, 
now I'm, I, I would say like, of course, like the people who want to see me as a son of, they will always see. But I, I also, I, I don't compare myself any, uh, to my dad anyway, because I'm just proud what uh, he achieved. And like we, we talked about it a few minutes ago. Um, I just try to be the best version of me and uh, don't try to compare to my dad <laughs> because uh, then I wouldn't be happy as well. Um, there, there's some pressure coming on your son to do uh, generations. Yeah. And, <laughs> I, but I, I, I always like to joke with this also. Like uh, there's uh, one of my, like one, I, on my Instagram, I, I have a video which, which got a little bit viral, like uh, in Tour of Therapy this year. They asked me like, how it is, how, how is it? You are the son of Eric Zabel and even your grandfather, because also the dad of my dad was a professional cyclist in East, <laughs> in East Germany. So like your whole family did cycling and how is it for you? Just, yeah, of course, it's not easy like for my dad and for my grandpa and also for my son. Like they will always be in the shadow of me. So I, <laughs> I, I played with this a little bit and I, I always like to play with this because yeah, now I'm 28 years old. I'm a father myself. I'm, I did the Tour de France a few times. I did the Giro. I'm very happy with who I am and with my career. So um, I don't have the feeling that uh, now at least the people I hang out with, they they don't see me as a son of, they see me as Rick. And that's what all I care about. Um, that all the people like I hang out with, my friends, that uh, they see me as Rick. And I'm very different. Like My character and everything is very different to, to the one... Uh, of my dad and uh yeah so like yeah i'm 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 just rick and uh does your dad still ride and can you absolutely crush him in a town sign sprint uh he's still riding a lot but he, he, he cannot race anymore uh he's he's also getting a little bit older but hey still i have the biggest respect for him because i don't know anyone who has a passion for cycling like him. Like he's by far the guy with the most passion for cycling I know because he's still like, he, he stopped his career 2008. And since then he did like, I, I would say the, he never did less than 20,000 kilometer a year. And the, the, the recent years even more. Like the recent years, he did for sure between 25 and 30 thousand kilometers. Like, so he's basically doing the same kilometers I do, or just a little bit less. And then, it, but it, it doesn't stop when he, when he, when he, like, he's not training, he's just riding his bike. He's, he's trying to do like a 100, kilome 100 kilometers every day. That's, that's what he's it's still a lot. It, it's still a lot. And he's still fit, like I said, but because he's just riding around, he's, he doesn't have this fitness anymore for sprinting or riding up. Uh, uh, a climb fast but he can go 30 kilometer average all day no problem my kind um, of mind. A, 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 a diesel he's like he's a real diesel now. but then the, it, it doesn't finish when he's like uh, steps off the bike then he cleans his bike every day and my, my, the, he collects bikes I think he has more than for sure now already 150 bikes oh amazing he collects everything. Like he has the biggest cycle collection I know. Like he has also a big, a big difference to me. I give everything away to my friends. Like all the team stuff I get, I give it to local clubs, to my friends, whatever. My dad, 
keeps everything. Oh, that's every amazing. You must send me a few pictures of that. I love all that old stuff. Every every single uh, every single jersey he had, every medal, every trophy, everything. Every everything is in in uh, at, at home. And yeah, he, he collects everything and he, he collects vintage bikes. And like, for example, in Berlin, there are a lot, there are a lot of like vintage coffee, cycling, cycling coffee shops. And then he just goes there and he hangs out forever in there and buys, <laughs> buys this, buys that. Like, honestly, cycling is everything. He watches every cycling race, which is on TV. He is all day on cycling news, on Radsport news. Like, he, he loves cycling. It's one. In his life, there's just one thing, and it's cycling. It's crazy. Rick, you've stepped out of your dad's shadow. You've had an amazing career so far, but something tells me your best days are still to come. Thank you for joining us on the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I hope uh, the listeners enjoyed it. And yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Nice talk. Thanks. Cheers, Rick.